Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. It's your DC Spotlight for December 7th, 2021. Uh, Rocky and I are going to be talking about all the DC books that came out this week. A little bit of a lighter week, thank God, thank God, because <laughs> uh, last week was kind of rough with, with 18 books. Um, I was at LA Comic Con this last weekend. Um, that was a lot of fun. There will be... Uh, an episode, a spotlight on that coming out later. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about uh, some of what I did. And there's also uh, an interview that I'll post with their CEO, um, which was very, very informative. He had some great th things and really cool insight. This guy's been putting on conventions, not necessarily comic conventions, but has been in the trade show business for over 25 years, 30 years, something like that. So he's got a lot of insight, uh, even things that, you know, me as a 11 year, I think at this point, con veteran didn't really think of because I don't necessarily look at it from the perspective of, of putting on the show. So I highly encourage you guys to to listen to that. Even if you're not somebody who goes to shows uh, on a regular basis, a lot of what he has to say is, is uh, pretty informative. The other thing I got to do is have dinner with some friends, including some, some DC friends. Uh, we're talking a little bit about kind of behind the scenes and, and how the sausage is made. And, <laughs> uh, and yeah, the, the, uh, the, the paper shortages and, you know, they're, they're working hard. And I, I want to go on record here publicly as saying that I, I very much appreciate what they are doing. And uh, they are working very hard to make sure that if we get the digital copy, if it's supposed to come out on a certain day, that that's the day it's actually going to come out. Uh, and when I stopped to think about it, when I was talking to them, it's like, you know what? That hasn't been the case with a lot of other, other publishers, with Marvel, with some independent publishers, with Image, where we'll get the digital copy, but the comic book doesn't actually come out that week. It's not actually shipped or it's shipped, but we don't get the digital copy. Uh, and again, there's a lot of moving parts. And I'm not blaming anybody for the challenge, but impressive that DC has been uh, on track with, with everything that's going on. So uh, appreciate that. And uh, I, I talked to a lot of creators on the show that are, or at the show that are uh, looking forward to coming on the, the comic source in the near future. So we should have quite a bit of, um, of interviews coming up for the 12 days of the comic source, all those extra episodes we release leading up to Christmas and, uh, and a special surprise. Uh, I know one specific thing we're going to be doing for the 12 days of comic source. I'm not ready to announce it yet because I don't have the graphics to blast out on social media, but uh, hopefully later this week. Uh, anyway, let's go ahead and dive right in 11 books this week. Uh, we'll start with world of Krypton number one. Written by a friend of the show, Robert Venditti, drawn by Michael Avon Oming. Colors are by Nick Filardi, lettered by Hassan Atzman Elhow. Um, yeah, I mean, we've talked in the past about how Venditti's a huge Superman fan. Superman is his favorite character. So I've really been looking forward to this. Uh, but I'm I'm really curious to your thoughts, Rocky, especially about kind of the overall feel. Yeah, well, my considering the, the art especially right yeah well i i gotta admit when i when i because i haven't been I, i'm not like a huge oming fan at least with his work at dc I, I love his work on powers but i immediately i i remember collecting the the classic world of krypton series back in the 80s and i remember all i just i don't remember all of it in great detail but i just remember the house of l and all this these in, these incredible stories which were very you know very they were they were given short thrift, but it was just kind of cool to read. And, you know, with Cal Superman in the front saying, people of Earth, I'd like you to meet my family. And it was so cool, you know. And uh, I got to tell you, the Oming 
Oming's art is is very different than the traditional DC style, but uh, I actually enjoyed his art here much better than I did his art on the Midnighter series. I thought his art was a marked improvement. I I got accustomed to it relatively soon. I I enjoyed this. I I enjoyed this opening issue. I think it's uh it's gonna go in some interesting directions exploring the House of L. It's a little bit almost almost Game of Thronesy maybe a little bit with the House of L and the, the House of Zod. And uh, the Cruel, uh, like uh, uh, you know, the the, the only L uh, member of the L family to taint and stay in the house of L, and and, and betrayal and and love, and uh, in the days before jo- uh, Kalal was born, and at Kara Zarel's christening, and it was just uh, I thought it was well done. It's interesting. Vendetti has sort of wet my appetite appetite here, and I think there might be some misdirection going on, but we'll get into it. But I I don't know I. So far, I'm, this opening issue works for me, and uh, you know we got six issues, and I'm really curious to see where it goes. Yeah, I, and I sort of feel the same way about it as you, right? Like, of course, I remember the classic World of Krypton. That was Mike Mignola art, mm-hmm. so, some some early that, the pre Hellboy Mignola. Uh, he had done <laughs> what he he had done the Cosmic Odyssey series at, at DC previous to that miniseries right. kind of event sort of thing. Uh, yeah, and so when I th- think about it and how much time because that really it covered on like four generations at, at, even more than generations now thousands of years uh and, and it was still written by burn but you know burn couldn't draw ever, everything he drew he did draw the other uh one of the other ones he drew world of metropolis i think and then world of smallville was was somebody else but he did the covers uh so it's sort of interesting that neither World of Krypton series, neither this modern one nor the one back from 87 or 86, whenever it was, are really drawn by what I would consider traditional superhero artists, which is which is interesting. Because I'm kind of the same way. Avon Omin, and we talked about this when we were covering his Future State work, uh, the, the Midnighter uh, backups he did. I just don't feel that he's a superhero artist. And, and granted, this isn't necessarily a superhero book, but I think of him more as a, um, like crime noir, like you said, powers, it, it works really well. So knowing he was on this, knowing it was World of Krypton and Superman related, I, and I want it to be good, I was a little apprehensive, but I, I agree that for whatever reason, maybe it's the coloring, maybe he tried to go for a little bit of a, a kind of a more open aesthetic. Uh, but his art works here. Um, I particularly like the the page layouts in terms of, of the panels and the panel borders that he uses that help give it more of a uh, kind of a futuristic feel. And again, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll call out Nick Filardi, the color artist, for, for using a lot of kind of bright blues and, and whatnot for the panel borders that, that look sort of electronic, almost Tron-like. And it all helps to sort of sell this idea that th- this is a, you know, an advanced culture and advanced society. Uh, so I, I really uh, enjoyed that. And then, and then, like you said, uh, you know, one thing that you said when you were talking about it really stuck with me, that game of Thrones, which I, I never watched game of Thrones. I know I'm like one of three people on the planet or, or what have you, but that's <laughs> a great way to, uh, to describe it in terms of just the, the overall political feel. And uh, I think that is, very true and something, you know, Metropolis and its ideas of, or Metropolis, Krypton rather, and, um, and its feel and its history and, and evolution of its society have, have sort of changed over time. Um, 
but one of the things that has always uh, existed from even the earliest was this idea of political factions and and you know different people wanting different things power and and the idea of families and and that sort of thing. So you're right. It is, it is from what I know of game of Thrones, it is very game of Thrones. So I like that Robert Venditti um, is leaning into that. So, yeah, so I, I, I'm intrigued. I was, I was impressed with this and, and mostly I was just happy that the, that the Avon Oming art uh, worked. And, uh, and I think there's a lot here. So yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I should give more compliments to, to, uh, Michael Von Oming. I liked his character. I liked the, uh, the, the costume design of, uh, yeah. jor and Laura. I liked the costume design of the characters. I thought, I thought you, you can tell he's, he's given a distinctive feel to the different, to the different, uh, families of the L family, zor family, uh, jor family. The, the, the most powerful house, uh, in, on Krypton is the L family. Uh, Zod has a distinctive look. Even Kurel has a, has a distinctive look. Uh, it, you know, it, it it works, and I, you know, you really get a feel. Even the backgrounds here, I don't really quite. They seem to, you know, Nick Falardi does a really good job with the colors. It does pop off the page. This, this is the type of um, coloring, and this, I, I think I got the distinct impression that the between the colorist and and Oming, I think he worked a lot harder on this because I, I think that he was working out maybe the wrinkles on his work on Midnighter because this, this works. So this, uh, even the facial expressions and they worked, uh, for, you know, for, for Oming here. I mean, and just the whole, uh, just the whole idea of, you know, it starts off with this, this Nira Ur, uh, who I think is related to Jaxer, one of the Phantom Zone criminals, but she's, she's a scientist and she discovers that some plant life are dying in the Jewel Mountains, these empathic creatures. And she reports to Jarrell and, and this is their. She reports to Jarrell while they're basically at. I think the glorified. I guess you could say the glorified baptism or or the christening, or it's a naming ceremony for Kara Zorel. And I, I'm not. I believe that Kara Kara was 14 years old, around 13 or 14 years old when Krypton exploded. So I'm guessing. Now mileage can vary on this, but I'm guessing that this is probably. 12 to 14 years before Krypton exploded because I think Kara was a Kara Zorel was around 13 or 14 when Krypton exploded and so uh, we've got 13 14 years to play with here of history leading up to the destruction of Krypton and so much can happen here so I think that this is a six issue series but if this is good and, and this is well received and because it's Vendetti I'm, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt here I like the art I like this opening issue it's planted a bunch of seeds. We already see machinations and, and plot twists and betrayals already in the making here. And already you see Zod and, and Cruel and all these interesting little things. Plus, if you if you just Google the name Cruel, K-R-U-E-L, Cruel, Cruel, and you, you just tease yourself with what the history of some of these old characters are, Cruel was a character that debuted in 1963. He's got a long history. That Superman's family history goes well before just the world of Krypton uh, series in the 1980s. So there's there's so much here that Robert Venditti could do, building on the past lore in the Silver Age. And I, I'm really curious to see what he does with this. Uh, this gets a, a strong recommendation for me because I, I think that, you know, in the DC Omniverse of thing, I, I, I think Jor-El needs a, needs a boost because I don't like the way Jor-El was portrayed by, by Bendis as being sort of this insane old man. And I think he got short thrift leading to the aging up of John Kent and that I'm not a big fan of that storyline. So 
I kind of like, you know, seeing Jor-El in a more positive light here, him and Laura and the, and the legacy, uh, and the legacy of Superman. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, Jor-El, I mean, I, I didn't care for his characters. I, in fact, I'd go so far as to say I didn't hate it, but pretty close. I hated Pa Kent's characterization in Man of Steel. Jor-El's by uh, Russell Crowe wasn't, wasn't much better. Um, but I do wonder, so I never watched the world of, or was it called? No, it was just called Krypton, right? That was on the sci-fi channel. Or, or the, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause it was David Goyer who's heavily involved in, um, in Man of Steel and has insulted comic fans at every, every chance he's gotten. Um, yeah. he basically at one point on a live podcast said, if you knew who Martian Manhunter was, you'd never get laid in your whole life. I mean, the guy's just, a, <laughs> the guy's just a, he's just a jerk. Like, and it, he wasn't joke. He wasn't. Wasn't like he was joke. He 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 also said that She Hulk was basically a, a like a male rape fantasy. Like he, the guy said some really offensive stuff, and I yeah. so I'm not going to support anything they did. But I've heard good <laughs> things about the show. I wonder how much you know that show and this uh, have in common. Because you're right. Like the 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 history of the Elf family goes back much much yeah. further than Superman. And, and, and I think it was the Krypton Chronicles. It was called the Krypton Chronicles in the eighties, that series. It wasn't called world of Krypton. Was it? No, no, it? no. I'm, I'm, uh, you're talking about the TV show. I know that. I'm talking about the TV show. No, that yeah. there, so there was a Krypton Chronicles in the early eighties, but then when at the same time that man of steel came out, the, the six issue, mini oh, yes. Superman, they put out at the same time as those, they put out <laughs> three. Be, and the reason they did that, um, the three world of Krypton, world of Metropolis and world of Smallville was because yeah, no. John Byrne didn't want to start, um, his Superman story by retelling the kind of the origin, you know, he, when action and Superman and adventure started up, he, he wanted it to be Superman had been around for a few years already. So they felt DC felt like they needed context. So that's why they put out those three world of Krypton, world of Metropolis and world of Smallville. So they could, okay, here, here's his, here's his past of this version of. Superman, who was never Superboy, as we all know. So anyway, mm-hmm. uh, let's move on. Uh, so if you guys haven't heard the news, it's right here on the cover of Swamp Thing number 10. Uh, and instead of saying 10 of 10, because last issue was 9 of 10, it says 10 of 16. Uh, <laughs> it definitely got uh, extended, which they didn't even announce. When they first announced this, it wasn't even announced as being limited. Uh, and then I think a few issues in, they said, yeah, they're only going to get 10. Uh, and I think, you know, selling well enough and, uh, Ram V I think has, you know, a lot more to tell with Swamp Thing. And so for whatever reason, they made the the choice. And I think it's a good one to uh, have this last a little longer. So we get Conduit part two from writer Ram V art is by Mike Perkins colors by Mike Spicer, Aditya Bidikar on the letters. Uh, and overall, I thought this was, was pretty solid. I, I'm glad that this, and I wonder how much, like, I wonder when did Ram V know because this certainly isn't like this particular issue. It doesn't it doesn't wrap anything up in any way whatsoever. Uh, we saw last issue that both Levi and his brother uh, Jacob were were sort of trapped in the the Prescott uh, laboratory, uh, and you know with, with <clears throat> Prescott fleeing um, with with Jennifer Levi's sort of girlfriend i think like it's hard to say what their relationship is it's never been like 100 yeah. percent established uh undefined yeah, but it's complicated yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly exactly there you go exactly <laughs> best way to, to describe it um but yeah so so they're blowing up the the 
kind of the research facility. And, and we see in this one that that sort of thing uh, continues. Prescott's sort of um, going scorched earth. So he's, he's not, you know, caught, doesn't fall in the hands of anybody. And he does exactly what you'd sort of expect him to do. He's such a kind of scheming Machiavellian figure and, and even says at one point, um, you know, did you, did you ever know me to act without a contingency plan? So he, he leaves, uh, abandons Jennifer, goes to another one of his, of his facilities, and who he, who shows up there is uh, who you would expect, which is Jason Woodrow, the Floronic Man. Um, and uh, and I guess we'll we'll go from here. Now, how his brother may have survived remains to be seen. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a compelling story and um, certainly I think a great job by, by Mike Perkins on the art. And, uh, and this is a character that Ramvi is very well suited to write. The thing I wonder is we get a little appearance from Alec Holland here. How, like how are Alec, how, how are long-term Swamp Thing fans, long-time Swamp Thing fans receiving this, you know, because there's definitely a love for Alec Holland. And I'm wondering, is this, like, is this the foreseeable future? I mean, DC is known for its legacy characters, you know, Hal Jordan to, um, to Kyle Rayner or Barry Allen to, to Wally West. So, you know, is this, is this a long-term thing? Is it a short-term thing? Does it matter when it comes to Swamp Thing? Cause you know, he looks the same. He's going to be green and, and planty regardless of, of who he is. So. Uh, anyway, I've never been a big Swamp Thing guy my, myself, and I keep saying I'm going to fall off, but um, there's always just enough from Ram V to, to keep me going. Uh, but anyway, you, you've been enjoying this series a lot more than me, Rocky, so what, what's your perspective on this issue? Uh, I actually think, uh, I actually, maybe it's just because I'm I'm playing more script doctor here, but I, I think it would have been better to end this at issue 10, this story arc. Uh, I'm all for another six issues of Swamp Thing, don't get me wrong, but frankly, I think this could have, this was, I think it, in my view, when I read this, I thought, oh, well, he obviously, he he just tweaked a couple things to extend this story. I, I think it was obvious that Swamp Thing and Levi, that Levi and his brother Jacob uh, were basically headed toward some kind of reconciliation or some kind of, you know, Swamp Thing would have defeated his brother. I think the, and, and I think there would have been... Uh, the the status quo would be maintained. Prescott would have escaped, and then the final issue and the final panel would have been a teaser that uh, Doctor Woodrow is being hired by Prescott Industries with the pale wanderer laying on the bed as sort of the cliffhanger. And they could have resolved it. That this could have this could have been a nice cliffhanger ten issue story. And in a sense, it still kind of is that. But you know, clearly they're 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 going with it. I mean, all the ideas like this idea that. The, the opening issue is all about the pale wanderer about, you know, even bad ideas, you know, an idea, an idea is very powerful. Good ideas can endure, but so can bad ideas and pale wanderer is the embodiment of that bad idea. And Jason Woodrow is called upon after the so-called defeat of Swamp Thing and his brother, which are basically, you know, what they're frozen by this. They're basically frozen in place and they're still alive. I think maybe just some kind of stasis swamp thing and, and, and his brother Jacob, but even Prescott, when, when Prescott says that, did you really think I wouldn't have a contingency plan? Well, I, I think in the original storyline, I don't think Prescott had a contingency plan. I, I think Ram V gave him a contingency plan when he found out he got another six issues. So, so, so he could extend the story. I, 
my fear is that this, I, I don't want this to feel like a decompressed storyline from 10 issues to 16. That's the only thing. Because I think that the, the whole theme and the, that are the, the metaphor of the bad idea and the pale wanderer, I thought it was very nice. And I thought 10 issues would wrap it up nice. I hope that this doesn't drag on necessarily and we get a bunch of decomp, you know, that this long story is just nothing but a decompressed metaphor for another six issues. But I mean, I enjoyed this. I, but I trust in Ram V. He's earned my, he's earned my respect. And uh, Mike Burton's art continues to be fantastic. That cover B is amazing as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm in this for, I'm in this to the, for the final six issues. No question. And who knows, maybe we'll get extended even, you know, could it be extended to 24 issues? Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, I mean th that's the thing, right? As much as I, like I said, I haven't read a lot of, of Swamp Thing over the years. Obviously, I'm I'm aware of it, and you know, Alan Moore. It's kind of what put him on the, the the map of American comics. From what I know of Swamp Thing, every, every series, even when we you talk about the Scott Snyder run that that went into uh, uh, that turned into the Charles Soule run as Charles took over for Scott when Scott left. It's very much long form story storytelling when you're telling stories of, of Swamp Thing. You know, it's it's sophisticated and it, and it 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 takes as long as it takes to get where it needs to get. So you you kind of wonder, you know, you say we don't want to decompress. Yeah, well, we don't want it to drag on, but at the same time, it's this idea of a more sophisticated way of telling stories, like like Alan Moore brought into it, where it's that soap opera style, you know, and you you have things subplots that run for six months, a year over a year sometimes before they finally come to fruition. So um, I don't know, I guess I, like crapper get off the pot DC, like just <laughs> make this an ongoing and let Ram V do what he needs to do. Uh, or like Rocky said, you know, give it to us in, in sort of seasons. Right. And yeah. don't, don't have it drag on for the sake of having it drag on. So yeah. uh, anyway, speaking of, of new things, Batman number 118. So this is the new creative team. Getting started, it's writer Joshua Williamson, uh, Jorge Molina, and Mikhail Yanin are the artists. Mayu Morey on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. This was was interesting. Um, I, I almost, in a way, don't don't know how to feel about it. Um, I, it felt almost like two different stories. It, it, it was yeah, so it, such it a did. weird, yeah, such a weird way to lay it out. Like it, it, it's Batman, and and we get a lot of uh, context about how things are going in, in Gotham, and and then all of a sudden he, you know, he he sees some news about hey, uh, some some members of of Gotham uh, Incorporated are are arrested for murder, and then he, he leaves Gotham, and and that's where he's going to be for for a while um outside of of gotham and so i i didn't know i didn't know what to think it, it felt very just it felt like a wrap up the future state to, to fear state didn't it to me it felt like it was wrapping up fear state the first half a, of the a little issue. bit yeah yeah a little bit in the beginning and and the other thing is so the the art like i there are times where and I, honestly, I mean, at least they did a good job of incorporating these two artists. Like, I didn't even realize that when I first read it that Mikhail Yanin didn't Mikhail Yanin did some of this art because it doesn't look like what Mikhail Yanin's art usually looks like. So I don't know if they made some changes to Mikhail's art to to make it look like a little more textural. I mean, usually his art is very smooth, 
So I don't know if Tameyu Moray did did some stuff or if Mikel himself did some stuff to 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 make it look more like uh, Jorge Molina's art. But th- there are times where, and, and the art is good. Like, don't get me wrong. These are beautiful pages to look at. And But there are times where particular panels or particular images look more like a, a cover image as opposed to a sequential panel where it's it's telling a story and the transition goes in smoothly to the next panel. Um, and so that it didn't necessarily bother me, but it did take me out of the story um, at times, you know, because I don't think you can say art or an image that makes a really good cover automatically means it'll work for an interior piece. The interior pieces need, you know, it's called sequential art for a reason. It needs to tell a story, the transitions you need. You can't get lost between, you know, giant pinups where you can't understand what's happening between, uh, between panels. I mean, there's that whole argument that most of the comic story takes place between the panels um, because your brain fills it in, you know, your imagination fills it in like what's happening, the movement or what have you as you're just getting these snapshots. Um, So yeah, the colors are really well done. Uh, but I, I just, I hope that that doesn't continue that feeling of, it's just a series of, of pinups. Um, it, it needs to be uh, sequential, but as far as the story goes, it, it's too soon for me to, to really say that this is going to work for me or not. Um, because like Rocky said, it did feel like the first half of the issue was a little bit of, okay, let's finish up fear state. We've, we've kind of got the end of the story of fear state, tied it all up with fear state Omega with some of the plot threads and let us know kind of the status of everything. And now this is sort of like, okay, well, here, here's, here's the state of Gotham city. Now that fear state's over is the first half of the issue. And then the second half of the issues, well, what's going to be the excuse for Williamson to take Batman and Bruce Wayne out of Gotham city. And it has everything to do with Batman incorporated. Um, and a surprise last page reveal that, uh, I don't know how I feel about it yet. Well, I'm reserving judgment. <laughs> I'll, I'll say that, but you know what? It's, um, it's a bigger issue. Got like 28 pages, I think. Uh, and at least there was no backup. Like Williamson got to just do his thing, which I appreciated. Don't give us, don't give us backups. Uh, if we're going to pay an extra dollar, like we've said many times, just make the main story longer. So anyway, yeah. what did you think, Rocky? I, I actually thought that we could have skipped uh, Batman, th- th- that, that last Omega issue ending Fear State. We could have just jumped to this. I thought Joshua Williamson did a really... He did a really good job here transitioning out of fear state, uh, you know, telling a nice, cohesive, smooth story that was much smoother than I thought the Omega issue was, transitioning us out of fear state into his plot line, which is basically Batman uh, investigating the the murder of a character called Abyss, and this this Abyss character uh, in Europe was murdered by. Um, former members of the of Batman Incorporated. We know that Joshua Williamson is a huge uh, is a huge Grant Morrison fan, and uh, he's incorporated Batman Incorporated characters, specifically Man of Bats, El Gacho, the Dark Ranger, the Hood, and the Batman Batman of China. And essentially, they kill this character called Abyss, and Batman essentially goes to another country to do uh, to investigate it. the 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 first half of the issue is rather curious. He goes to some villains ball like which were a bunch were a bunch of billionaire socialites are are cosplaying as 
Gotham's rogues ga- or Batman's rogues gallery, and and he just he just breaks up he just breaks up a fight there. It's rather odd. It was a it was almost a, a almost a waste of the first half of the issue because uh, it was completely unrelated to the actual plot line of getting Batman out of the country to investigate the main storyline where it is where it's going to be moving forward with the abyss character. So it's, it's, it's very odd. Like you said, it does feel almost like two separate stories, but, but it's, it's, it's a nice transition out of fear state into Joshua Williamson's storyline. And I think, dare I say, I think maybe at the time that Williamson wrote this, he probably, dare I say, maybe Williamson knew that fear state was going to end a little bit, maybe wonky. And it kind of did in my view. So I appreciate what Williamson did here. And the art, I think the art's fantastic. I didn't I didn't quite have the issues you had with some of the transitions. I thought it was a nice split between Mikhail Jen and often draws like the posing scenes and what have you. Uh, Jose Molina, uh, I think it, this is actually a nice combination of artists here and, and the coloring is fantastic. I I thought, you know, I really like the some of these pages are just gorgeous. I mean, just really gorgeous. And and, uh, you know, it, it, it worked for me. I'm, I'm kind of I'm even half as interested in this story. The cliffhanger here is interesting. And of course, everybody knows that we get spoilers here. So the cliffhanger involves the revelation that Batman Incorporated is being funded by Lex Luthor. And what's interesting about that is we know that Bruce Wayne is not rich anymore. He's he's not a billionaire, but he's probably a millionaire, but he's not a multi-billionaire. And interestingly enough, Lex Luthor, up until this week, also was not rich because coming out of uh, the you know year of the villain, Lex Luthor gave up all his money. He he gave up all his money to become the apex uh, Luthor. And but he in the pages that we're going to be reviewing uh, Superman Son of Kal El issue five, where it will be be revealed in that issue that we'll discuss later in this in this rev- podcast uh, slash review. We will reveal exactly how Luther became super rich again, and he's using some of that money to fund Batman Incorporated. And Lex Luthor, by the end of this issue, is the prime suspect for who is maybe uh, who who created this Abyss character, or facilitated, or encouraged Batman, the members of Batman Incorporated, to do something that Batman are not supposed to do. They're not supposed to kill. If you're a member of Batman Incorporated, that's the number one rule. You don't kill. So what was it that made these members of Batman Incorporated kill? That's one of the central mysteries here. And I'm, I'm curious to see where this takes us and what Joshua Williamson has in store. Yeah, and I should I should be clear. I, I don't think any of the art is bad in terms of, uh, like, technically bad. Like, the anatomy and, and you know, like, yeah, you're right. It, it is gorgeous. I just... I don't, I, I think some of the images would be better suited for covers instead of uh, interior art. And, and the other thing that I'll, I'll mention, you know, you mentioned the costume party. Uh, we, we have talked, I, me specifically, many times on this podcast in recent history about why in God's name would anyone live in Gotham City with all the <laughs> craziness that goes on there. Uh, kind of going hand in hand with that. Who in Gotham City is dumb enough to dress up like a villain. Like these people are smart <laughs> enough to have made billions. I mean, maybe some of them inherited it or whatever. I, I don't buy that. Like I get it. It works for the story purposes or whatever, but I don't think anybody in, in, in real life, if Gotham existed in real life, anybody would be dumb. Well, first of all, no one would live there, but yeah. even if people did, they would not be dumb enough to dress as villains. Um, that's just, <laughs> yeah, that's insanity. So, 
Uh, anyway, speaking of the aforementioned Son of Kal-El, which, which obviously takes place uh, before uh, the Batman issue, as we just said, because like Rocky mentioned, Apex Lex gave up all his money. Uh, so how, how has he been funding Batman Incorporated? Well, he got his money back. This must've happened a, a while ago, but yet it had to happen after Superman left earth. Uh, I guess just don't think about it too much. <laughs> so, uh, it'll make sense in your mind. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's, this is written by Tom Taylor, Steve Pugh and Clayton Henry do the art, Ramulo Fajardo Jr. And Steve Buccioletto on colors, Dave Sharp on letters. Um, yeah, what'd you think, Rocky? Superman, son of Kal El. Uh, I have mine out of order here. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I. My uh, my initial. Let me see here. Sorry. God. Uh, yeah, I. Th- this is interesting because with with John Kent. This this entire issue is essentially him meeting Lex Luthor, the return of Lex Luthor. And this, what I think Tom Taylor is maybe attempting to do here, and maybe I'm being too generous to Tom Taylor, is that he's trying to draw the distinction maybe between John, how John Kent will handle Lex Luthor versus how uh, his father, Kalal, would handle Lex Luthor. Because right away at the beginning of this issue, we have we have a flashback to one of the first adventures and uh, altercations between Superman and Lex Luthor where Superman defeats Lex Luthor with the help of the Justice League and Luthor is defeated because of his own ego. He sort of he sort of get, has a shit-eating grin on his face and he reveals what his plan is uh, and of course Batman records it and and is, is threatening to you know show the world what Lex Luthor just said and so Lex Luthor Lex Luthor's ego got the best of him and he was uh Martian Manhunter pretended to be Metallo and they, they really pulled one up on Lex Luthor. And so Lex Luthor's own ego defeated him. And of course it always does. And it's followed up by a, a prison scene where, where Superman is essentially talking to Lex Luthor in prison. And the Lex Luthor wants Superman to play a game of chess with him. And Kal-El doesn't really, he doesn't believe in playing games. He doesn't. He doesn't want to play chess with him, but he kind of does. But Kalal is more and more concerned about making his point, telling Lex that, "Look, there's so much you can do for the world. Imagine how how powerful we could be if we teamed up. How much good we can do." But of course, Luther's ego ultimately. He's all about control, and Kalal tr- truly believes that Lex Luther is so much about control that if he can't control it. If he can't control and dominate something, he doesn't want to help it. He doesn't want to steer it. He just, he wants to be in control of it. And his need for control of everything ultimately makes him somebody who is more prone to be, unfortunately, more of a dictator and somebody who dictates as opposed to helps, to help. Now, we flash forward, interestingly enough, we flash forward, then we look at John Kent and how John Kent views Lex Luthor and... Uh, we have, uh, I mean, th- there's there's a lot of scenes here that that I, quite frankly, that I think as a, as a constructive criticism of Tom Taylor that I think are just filler. There, there's, I think there's a lot of wasted pages here with him playing with a Superboy, play John Kent playing with a polar bear. I think a lot of useless scenes with him talking to Lois that I don't think really move the narrative forward. This this could have been you could have taken at least twenty pages off of this issue in my view. 
this could have just been a single 22 page comic. Uh, I think a lot of it was sort of, uh, unnecessary, but you got, but I mean, I guess you got a good scene with John Ken talking to a polar bear that, that he, 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 he names a polar bear named Gale. Like I just, I don't know. I think it's the more significant aspects of the issue is John Kent's relationship, how John Kent views Lex Luthor in my mind and versus how is he different than his father, Kal-El. That relationship, that connection between Superman and Lex Luthor is iconic. It goes to the heart of the Superman mythology, Superman versus Lex Luthor. How does Kal-El deal with Lex Luthor? How will John Kent, his son, the next Superman deal with Lex Luthor? We got a nice call back to the original, to the Superman movie with sort of an AI Kal-El talking to his son in the Fortress of Solitude. That's a nice, that's, that's interesting. It's, it, of course, it reminds you of like Jor-El speaking as a hologram to Kal-El, his son. And now we've got Kal-El talking to John Kent in the Fortress. And uh, you, you got to wonder if they're preparing us readers for the fact that maybe, in fact, Kal-El will be off the playing field for a long time after War World. Who knows? But I find it interesting how... At the end, I really, I really love the, the ending where John Kent confronts Lex Luthor and the manner in which he confronts Lex Luthor. He's a lot more in your face with Lex Luthor. John Kent actively engages Lex Luthor in finishing the chess match that started between Superman and, and between Kal-El and Lex in the prison. And John Kent, uh, frankly, lures Lex Luthor using his ego again, luring him into a false sense of security, preparing for the match almost kind of showing off a little bit. Uh, that's how I viewed it. Now, it'd be really interesting to hear your take on this, Jace. I viewed it as this this John Kent is a little bit more willing to jump into the fray. He's more willing to engage Lex Luthor head on, whereas his father, kal was always always wanted to try to reach Lex philosophically to try to talk him into something, whereas John Kent was, is willing to jump into the fray into what in, into Lex's arena and to beat Lex at his own game in order to make his point. And, and I'm not sure if it will be, you know, Kal-El said to, to his son at one point, you know, I, I've tried so many ways to reach Lex, but I failed. But we, we were never told as a reader, what exactly did Kal-El think his approach to Lex was? We know that he failed, but how can you treat Lex different that you're going to have a different success rate? What advice did he give John Kent? We didn't, we don't really know. All we know is how John Kent deals with Lex at the end by defeating him in that chess match. So it'd be interesting to see, uh, you, you hear your thoughts uh, on that. As for Lex Luthor becoming rich again, he basically blackmails three, uh, arch three fellow supervillains. Uh, one of one, the most common one being blockbuster. I'm not familiar with the other two, but uh, he actually blackmails uh, three supervillains, one of them being Blockbuster in, in Bloodhaven and uh, using nanites. And if they, they don't, they didn't transfer him $1.7 billion, he would kill them and it would be untraceable. And so that's how he became rich. And that's ultimately how he ends up being able to fund Batman Incorporated, I'm assuming, in the comic we just reviewed. But I'm curious what you think, Chase, about like... What is Tom Taylor trying to say about the differences between John Kent and Kal-El and his approach to Lex Luthor? Or is he saying anything useful at all? Well, it's, it, it's interesting because he makes the point several times. He, he, make, he makes it at least three times, I'll say, mm -hmm. um, that Superman underestimated Lex Luthor from the beginning. And then, you know, during that hologram scene that you mentioned, 
Superman even says, you know, I, I made a lot of mistakes with Lex. I don't want to see you, you know, make the same mistakes. And, and Lex himself in trying to manipulate John says, yeah, your father and I got off on the wrong foot. And John replies, yeah, he said something similar, but they mean something completely different. Lex is trying to play the, I'm not the bad guy card. You know, he's trying to say, yeah, you're the relationship your father and I had, it, it started off as sort of this miscommunication. I'm really not the bad guy that your father thinks I am. Whereas what's actually the reality is that Lex is more like, you know, Cal L is, is he always sees the best in everybody, right? He wants to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. He sees the best in humanity. And that even extends to Lex Luthor when they first met, regardless of which version we're talking about, you know, post-crisis, um, pre-crisis, certainly the, 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 the burn era. He always wanted to believe that he could reach Lex. Um, and then over the years with all the horrible things Lex has done, he's come to the realization that maybe Lex is the one person that's, that's not going to change. That's going to always be looking out for his best interest over anybody else's. And so, uh, you know, when he's telling John, I don't want you to make the same mistakes that I did. I think what he's saying to John is I don't want you to underestimate Lex the way that I did. And I, I think it's a fantastic, uh, use of, of storytelling to have, to have John Kent actually beat Lex Luthor at, at chess. Cause you a hundred percent believe John when he says, I don't, I don't, I've never played chess, <laughs> but you know, in the <laughs> blink of an eye, he goes and reads every, every chess book there is, uh, and studies every single, uh, chess game that Lex has ever played so that he, instead of the shoe being on the other foot, like it is with his father, where, Kalel, to some extent, is always a step or two behind Lex Luthor in terms of not knowing what he has planned. It's totally been flipped around, um, and John gets a chance to show Lex that I'm not my dad, um, and I may be willing to go a step further. But, you know, a, a step further in defeating him, I should say, to finish that thought. But the other thing that John does, he's still a young guy. He still has his um, his ideals. And he kind of flips it around on Lex. You know, he says, I know you're smart enough to know that the world's in trouble. You can't look around you and not see, you know, between climate change and all this political upheaval. Um, and so in that way, he's sort of challenging Lex into intellectually to say, hey, you could be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. I know it's all about control with you and power. Um, you know, what are you what are you willing to do to show uh, you know, how smart you are. Are you willing to help me solve some of these problems? Um, but regardless, if you're willing to help me or not, I will defeat you in the end if, if needed. And that's a hundred percent, that's a hundred percent in my mind, what John is thinking when he flies away at the end, uh, with this big smile on his face yeah. after he's taken the L that fell off of LexCorp, fell down to the ground and he says, uh, Luther, you should take the L. I mean, it's 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 definitely a pun, and it's very much a dad joke from Tom Taylor, but it got me laughing out loud. I, th I thought it was fantastic. Well, L is in loser. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Take the L. Take the loss, Luther. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's plenty of moments of humor in here like that. Uh, I do agree with uh, with Rocky that it's a, this is a little overwrought. Um, there are definitely... It definitely could have been a little bit shorter. 
as far as the polar bear scene, so um, I follow Tom Taylor on Twitter, and I, I've you know I've met him several times. I'm friends with Gail Simone, who I also follow on Twitter. They have a, a quote unquote feud, um, right. <laughs> and uh, you know the running joke is is Gail's actual polar bear, and so oh, I, I think that? that's where this polar bear scene came in. And then they say <laughs> the polar bear is going to be named Gail. Oh, that, that's, that's funny name for a polar bear. So that's 100% Tom Taylor, just you know having, having fun. fun, having fun with Gail Gail Simone. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess if it works, but yeah, but you're right. I mean, this could have been, this could have been streamlined uh, a little bit, but it does a good job of, of reminding us who Lex is bringing it back and establishing Lex as that sort of, uh, businessman villain as a, and I, I think, you know, John Byrne was the one that, that sort of invented that version of him. And he wasn't as much the mad scientist with the armor and, you know, out there being active himself, he was hiding behind lawyers and corporations and you know insulating himself from any of the bad stuff that happened by several layers you, you throw employees under the bus or, or oh it was my chief of security or it was this guy or that guy i didn't know about it uh and i think that version of lex actually works much better in my mind than, than lex wearing the armor and getting in, involved himself um so yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that 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 that's the direction that tom taylor takes lex in and we do see him in his in his power armor in this uh in this mm -hmm. issue several times, but I like that, that, that idea much better than the apex Lex version uh, yeah. as well, which, which didn't make I, sense ever make sense to me that Lex would have trusted. Um, what was her, what was her name? I can't even remember her name now. It's the, the, the person that invented our multiverse. What was her name? Uh, Oh, uh, Perpetua. Perpetua. There you go. Yeah. 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 And I, yeah. I find it ironic here at the end that, uh, Lex Luthor, uh, tells mercy that, uh, that, uh, that one of the one of the supervillains that he killed, who gave him one point seven billion dollars, but then tried to kill him, uh, and he was ultimately saved by super by John Kent in this issue. Uh, he says uh, he criticizes this Luca character for doing something so stupid that Luca didn't think ahead. He didn't think of the ramifications of his failure. Very short sighted, and he's criticizing Luca for the very reason for the very thing that Luther himself is guilty of, which was what caused him to lose the chess match to, to John Kent. <laughs> he didn't think ahead. He didn't think of the ramifications of, of you know, he, he was short-sighted. He made assumptions. And, and it's interesting here that John Kent's comments did sink into Lex. And Lex, you know, Lex obviously is of the mindset that the world doesn't, does indeed need saving. But, of course, Lex's idea of saving the world while John Kent might have been thinking about climate change when he said that to Lex Luthor, uh, Lex Luthor's idea of saving the world might be very different than uh, John Kent's, particularly since he's now he wants to call Henry Bendix to discuss something called the Rising. So it'll be very interesting to see what that is. And of course, Henry Bendix is the is the primary villain so far in the first five issues of the main series of Superman: Son of Kal-el. So it'll be interesting to see where we're headed. Yeah, I mean, we talked about that when we saw Bendix uh, show up in terms of having Bendix be kind of a Lex Luthor type villain for John Kent. Now we get now we get Lex Luthor as a villain. I mean, they're very similar in a lot of ways. You know, they're they're powerful, they're smart, they're scheming, they're Machiavellian, they're white dudes. They're they got a lot of money and they're they're both bald. So, uh, yeah. yeah, not to be not to be confused with one another. Um, so it'll be interesting. Tom Taylor's got to be sure that he differentiates between the two because you could easily, I mean, everything that happens in this issue, almost you could substitute 
Bendix for, for Luther. So you want to make sure that's not the case. They need to be distinct. Yeah. Uh, okay, moving on. Uh, we have Batman 89, issue number four. It's from writer Sam Hamm, Joe Quinones on art, Leonardo Ito on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, I'm going to echo what I've said about this uh, all along. It feels very much in tone and spirit like the Tim Burton Tim Burton version of Batman. It feels like it would fit very well um, in that movie universe as a as a movie. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of that version of Batman, so for me this is uh, okay. But I I will say that uh, I I really like this. I really like this Robin. Um, I think that this this version of of Tim Drake, which I suppose in a way is a little bit of a a mashup of um, of the Tim Drake version of Robin, but also I I get a little bit of a Duke Thomas vibe, you know, the signal. Yeah. Um, and Definitely. so I, I I think I think it works um, on a lot of levels. Uh, the only thing that, that did kind of bother me. Uh, about the issue is is Barbara Gordon is uh, an extremely smart individual and knows a lot about technology. And regardless of whether she thinks this version of Selena Kyle, who is uh, supposed to be some sort of uh, computer technology consultant, um, there's no way Barbara Gordon gets up from her computer and doesn't doesn't lock her computer. And there's no way she gives access like Barbara, Barbara Gordon is Oracle, you know, in, in, in the regular DC universe, no way she gives this person that she doesn't really know, uh, access to her computer. Yeah. It just doesn't, it doesn't happen. That, that was like, no, that, 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 that bugged me. Um, but maybe that's just because I work in, uh, in it for my day job. Uh, as far as, uh, the art goes, it's been fantastic throughout. I mean, Joe, Joe Quinones is a, is a brilliant artist. He's, he's a chameleon. You can draw in many different styles and, uh, that's fantastic. He, he draws these characters, especially Bruce Wayne, uh, where he looks enough like Michael Keaton, but he, he doesn't try to go like photorealistic. Um, and, and the same thing with this, this version of, of two face and, and poor Billy D Williams, who's now horribly, horribly disfigured. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think, I think it works on a lot of levels. I will say one more thing. Um, I'm glad we didn't get this movie in, I guess it would have been 1995. Uh, you know, Tim Burton had left the franchise and we got the, the Batman and Robin movie that brought Chris O'Donnell in as a Dick Grayson version of Robin, um, with the, the Tommy Lee Jones two-face, um, and Jim Carrey as the Riddler. Um, I, I don't know that that, that Billy D. Williams in this version of, of Harvey Dent works in that, in that movie. So anyway, what'd you think, Rocky? Well, this is the, the <clears throat> unfortunately, because I just feel like we, I'm, I'm robin out, uh, with Ro the series Robins. And, uh, I think we're getting so much about the, the Robins and the Batman. I really do think. I just I got Robin fatigue, and unfortunately, Batman eighty nine just suffers from the fact that, I, and this is not the fault of writer Sam Ham, who I think write, writes a good uh, writes a writes a good story here. I just don't feel like reading another Robin story. I also think the reason why I'm not in, I'm not enjoying this Batman eighty nine as much as I'm enjoying Superman seventy eight, because we're not getting enough Michael Keaton here. 
I miss Mike. You know, I, I like Michael Keaton. I love all the Christopher Reeve we're getting in, in Superman 78. I really enjoy that. Uh, he's the heart and soul of that comic series, Superman 78. Michael Keaton here very much is, is he's a guest star in this Batman 89. And this is really the Robin story. This is uh, a, man, a young man by the name of Drake Winston becoming Robin. And and that's fine. It is like it's 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 all right, but it's it's not. It doesn't feel like. Uh, uh, it just doesn't feel enough. There's not enough Michael Keaton here to 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 set to 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 satisfy me. I'm also I'm, I also don't find it. Um, I'm just not. I don't find myself invested as, enough in the story here. Uh, although I will say that the, there's there there are good moments between Michael Keaton and Drake. I can understand why Michael Keaton li likes Drake and why Drake likes him. And there's there's good moments where they're you know they both they're both aware that Drake knows that Michael Drake knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman. Bruce Wayne knows that Drake is this new character that's been uh, you know upsetting uh, corrupt police in Gotham. So there there's some good rapport there. And so there's some good moments. I really like the moment between Barbara Gordon and Selena Kyle. I, I actually wish, quite frankly, I wish there was more of artistic similarities between Michelle Pfeiffer's look and Selena Kyle's look here. I wish there was. I think that would have made this uh, feel a little bit more in tune. Uh, Michael Keaton's uh, uh, artist Joe Quinones does a good enough job with Michael Keaton. I would have liked to have seen just a little better job with Michelle Pfeiffer, a little bit more lifelike. I think that would have maybe got me more into the story a little bit more. But perhaps I'm being unfair because I'm comparing it to Superman 78. That literally feels like a, an actual sequel to the movie. This doesn't quite quite feel that way to that same level. Um, again, it's it's okay. It's I um, it, it's all right. But I I'm not invested in this story. I'm not really sure where you know this two faced story is going. I'm not even sure that I care all that much. Batman's got a new Robin. Okay, I'm not. I, I wasn't. I, I wasn't captivated by this story. I wanted to stop reading before I reached the end, to be quite honest. And that's. Um, so I was a little bit disappointed. And although, and but I want to give a shout out here. Uh, little things like the Kit Kat virus that Selena Kyle has. I thought that was good. There's a reference to Shrek Enterprises by Selena. And Shrek uh, to the Max Shrek character played by Christopher Walken. Of course, we don't see Christopher Walken's character in here, but I like the I like the callback and the reference. I would have liked to have seen a lot more of the callbacks, other than just them giving uh, names to these things. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more, like frankly we're seeing in the Superman seventy eight series. I'll be very blunt. To me, this Batman eighty nine comic book should have been about instead of about creating new characters, it should have been about paying more tribute but people can disagree with me on that but i'm having so much fun with superman 78 seeing different versions of, of characters but and that's with all those you know seeing jor-el and superman again and lois and all those classic characters i would have liked to have seen a little bit more familiarity here in this batman 89 but uh, maybe i'm just being unfair but uh that's how i feel but overall you know again sam hem's doing a, a decent enough job uh, I just wish it was maybe a slightly different story. And um, I don't know if we really needed another. I really don't think we needed another Robin story, but that's how I feel about that. Yeah. I mean, ultimately this is the story that Sam Ham. you know, he wrote the screenplays for the first two. This is the next screenplay he would have written. And it's, 
it's the difference between writing a movie and writing a comic. You know, mm-hmm. I, I 100% agree that we're getting, a, I mean, I, I said it, the first couple of issues, this is, this is like the Billy D Williams story, you know, and now this issue it's, it's turned into the, the Robin story. Yeah. We're getting almost no Batman. I a hundred percent agree. That would never actually happen in a movie because you're not going to pay Michael Keaton, what they pay Michael Keaton and not have him be on the screen. But you also can, there's things you can do in, in that medium to get these characters established, you know, much sooner. I mean, if you look at the first movie, there's significant um, portions of the movie that are dedicated to the Joker. But yeah. again, it's Jack Nicholson. You're not going to pay Jack Nicholson to be the Joker and then not have him get his turn on, on the screen. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I actually, and you can do that. Yeah. You do, you can do it much quicker, yeah. you know, in, in, in film and television, as opposed to in comics, you, in order to establish these characters, you've got to give them a lot more real estate. Yeah. Now for sure. I, I actually kind of wonder in the early nineties, would they have approved this script? I mean, a black Robin with uh, maybe, yeah, they probably would have, I guess. Yeah, they would have, because but, if you remember, um, there was a lot of talk before Chris O'Donnell got the job that it was going to be Sean Wayans was going to play Robin. I thought that was a joke. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think so. I think he was, yeah, I think it was actually, I think yeah. it was actually considered. I mean, don't, I'm not going to disparage Chris O'Donnell's acting, but it wasn't like he. Well, no, he, <laughs> it was terrible. Chris O'Donnell was terrible. Yeah, as well. right? Like, yeah. Mm. nipples on the nipples on the chest anyone yeah yeah i, I mean i i actually actually that movie that the the val kilmer batman and nicole kidman as chase meridian and over the top jim carrey and tommy lee jones like trying to be even more over the top and and played that role so different than anything he's ever done before trying to compete with jim carrey that's actually my favorite batman movie because it's so bad that it's that it's it's actually good and funny <laughs> as a, as as opposed to the George Clooney, which why Batman and Robin Forever that one's yeah. so bad that it's just it's just bad it's unwatchable. Oh man, in my, in my I got to tell you, but Kim I, Kim Basinger was at her height in 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 the, in the Batman movie with Michael Keaton and and uh, Chase Meridian played by Nicole Kidman with Val Kilmer. She was at her hottest too. So there's something about Batman women in the movies that are just <laughs> good yeah. to see. Uma. Yeah, except Uma Thurman, who was terrible as Poison Ivy. Yeah, I, I All agreed. Right. All right. Yeah, let's move on. Uh, the Order of the Arkham City, Order of the World. Uh, issue number three is up next. It's written by Dan Waters. Danny is the artist. Dave Stewart on colors. Aditya Bidikar on letters. I have to shout out the variant cover by Gary Frank with um, with Solomon Grundy. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I, I just, I'll just, yeah, I'll just pose this question: How different and creepy and malevolent, in a totally different way, would this story feel if Gary Frank was drawing the interiors? Now, I yeah. get it. Dan, this aesthetic from Danny is is creepy in its own right, but it's just not a style of art that I enjoy. Um, <laughs> I just, I just don't like, if you're watching us on YouTube, look at that page that, uh, that Rocky has up right now. Um, and you see the, the detective sitting on the bed there. Um, he doesn't, there's no lines outlining his legs. It's just color and he has toenails. (laughs) 
like I, I don't I don't understand. I I I don't I, I don't understand. <laughs> I, I just don't. I so that being said, you know, even though I, I don't particularly enjoy this style of art, like I've said all along, it does suit the aesthetic and the tone of the story that Dan Waters is is telling. And I actually enjoyed this issue more than I have any of the previous issues because it it had a little bit, I think, a mo, more coherent narrative. Um, what's going on is is starting to come through a little more. It's being explained a little better. The story's starting to coalesce. Uh, we got a little bit more agency from the Ten-Eyed Man. He didn't seem so crazy and, and wacky, quite as crazy, crazy and wacky. Uh, and the same thing with Azriel, despite Azriel's insane zealotry. Um, at least the story's starting to come together. Um, but yeah, I just think when I saw that cover, I was like, man, I I get it. Gary Frank, he's really detailed. It takes a long time. And, you know, that's the biggest reason that he uh, doesn't do monthly books. Um, but it, it, God, it would be, I, I, I would be singing the praises. It would be probably one of my favorite, favorite titles. Um, so just goes to show how important a, an, an artist is. But I, again, I'm not disparaging what Danny does here because she's doing a good job of, of telling the story and getting across that feel that I think Dan Waters wants. It's just not a style that I personally uh, enjoy. So uh, what are your thoughts, Rocky? Well, I, uh, I'll i come in on the opposite end of you. I actually, I, I really enjoyed her style. I thought it worked well. I, I, I think with the Ten-Eyed Man here, he's creepier than hell. I actually think that while I love that variant cover by Gary Frank, I actually I do think that Danny's artistic sensibilities sort of suits this story a little bit better. Uh, but uh, I, I think I can appreciate where you're coming from. At the same time, I really love the idea that there, there's something so creepy and mysterious about this ten-eyed man. This takes place after Arkham eighty. You know, all the inmates from Arkham, a lot of the a lot of the criminally insane that are maybe not so criminally insane, all the little hybrids, all the all, all the nuances of criminal, uh, mentally ill patients. I mean, the, the cops are looking for them. And what's crazy about this ten-eyed man is that he he thinks that all of Gotham City is the asylum, and he's got a map of Gotham, and and he he seems to know where all the inmates, all the patients are hiding in Gotham. And he looks at a, a map of Gotham, and he view he almost sees it like the hospital, with each individual area of Gotham being like a hospital, being like a a room where certain inmates were. And then he's he seems to know exactly where all these patients are that escaped from Arkham Asylum. He seems to know where they are at, and and Doctor Joy is. She she's got this ten-eyed man in her in her basically in her apartment, <laughs> and she's trying to cure him. She's she's a little bit kind of obsessed. She's I guess she's had a she's been a failure in her career. She she's so desperate to actually cure somebody from Arkham Asylum because no one's ever done that before. <laughs> I think I think even Harley Quinn failed to cure anyone from Arkham <laughs> Joker anyone. But you know Doctor Joy. I mean she's so desperate to cure the ten-eyed man. And meanwhile, the ten-eyed man is identifying the location of all these other inmates, and in, and in particular, we almost have we have this kind of radioactive inmate that's hiding out in apartment buildings and 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 giving radiation poisoning to some of the uh, some of the the tenants and some of the at least one of the apartments. 
Meanwhile, Solomon Grande is located by the Ten-Eyed Man. Dr. Joy sort of follows the Ten-Eyed Man around. And I'm not, you know, I'm not entirely sure where this is going. Uh, you know, because obviously you've got to, you've got to round up all these patients. I, I'm not clear where this narrative is going. It's called Arkham City Order of the World. And I'm trying to reconcile the, the title, Arkham City, the Order of the World. It's actually, it's Arkham City because the entire city is the asylum. The city itself, Gotham City has become the asylum. And each individual area of Gotham is where some patients are hiding out. And only the Ten-Eyed Man knows where they're at. But the Ten-Eyed Man is kind of crazy himself. Uh, but meanwhile, you got Azrael who's looking and hunting everyone down. And Azrael now views Dr. Joy as part of the problem because he thinks Dr. Joy ha has joined the cult of Arkham, basically. And she's been indoctrinated and she's hiding out these patients. And he's not entirely wrong in that. Dr. Joy, her heart's in the right place her, and her mind is she wants to cure the Ten-Eyed Man. But it's, <laughs> I mean, in, in typical Gotham story fashion, there's always chaos. And I think that, I like this. I, I actually, I particularly, I want to give Danny credit for, I like the way she draws Azrael here. I like, he, he looks creepier than he does in the past with just the red and the black and the stringy, uh, you know, stringy behind him cape. And I, it, it's interesting. Azrael, Azrael seems more creepy here and a little bit more, he feels more, more religiously fanatical and all, than he has, I think, in 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 the Batman Urban Legends that we've been reading, almost like he he finds he seems creepier here, and I, I I sort of like this artistic rendition and the the narrative version of him as well here. So, you know, I'm I'm intrigued. I'm I'm really curious to see how this ends because I you know I'm I I don't know what the fate of Doctor Joy is, and that's what I'm most curious to find out. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, okay, let's move on. We have another Tom Taylor book. Uh, it is Dark Knights of Steel, number two, written by Tom Taylor. Art is by Yasmin Putri. Colors by Arif Prianto. Letters by Wes Abbott. This was... Ah, I don't... I don't know. I almost don't know what to, to think about this. You know, it, it's interesting. We're getting so many of these sort of titles. You know, th this, Dark Knights of Steel... We've got Dark Ages from Tark, uh, from Tom Taylor over on the Marvel side of things. We had uh, previously the DC story. Uh, we've got DC versus vampires. It's in, it's interesting these out you know what if or Elseworlds type stories that give a chance for writers to to give different versions of the characters. But it's not just different versions of the characters. A lot of times it's uh, it's hero fighting hero, um, and that's sort of the thing that I don't. I don't know that necessarily works for me and, and we're going to talk about it. Um, I, well, I'm going to talk about it um, probably on the final book that we talk about uh, as well, but, um, but no doubt that this is probably going to sell really well. And, and it's one of the things that Tom Taylor does exceptionally well. And, you know, he established that with the first property that sort of put him on the name of American comics or on the American comics landscape, that being um, injustice. So, um, so what do you think of this Rocky? Uh, Dark Steel, uh, Dark Knights of Steel, number two. Well, I, I mean, I'm, you know, like <laughs> he had me in the first issue. I, I, I wasn't with you. Uh, I never reviewed with you the first issue of this. Uh, but I, I, I quite liked it. I, the whole idea of, you know, again, that that age-old Elseworlds notion of what if 
you know, Kal-El's ship crash landed in a different time and place, what could happen? And the whole idea here of him crashing in medieval times and the impact that that would have, especially if Jor-El and Laura were on that rocket ship with Kal-El, I thought, I thought it's played really well here. We've already talked about sort of a Game of Thrones idea, you know, and other things. I mean, it's been done with, I, I think that sort of, that sort of medieval feel with uh, and on all the subplots and twists, I think it's 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 a good influence here. I really like all this can go in so many directions. I love the idea we got that we got the Kingdom of Storms with Jefferson King Jefferson King Jefferson Pierce Black Lightning with his daughter Anissa and Jennifer and his son Jacob controlling the thunder, the lightning, and the rain. We've got the House of L. We've got the uh, Amazon Island where Diana of Themyscira is um is in a relationship with uh uh pardon me is in a relationship with princess zala who is the daughter of jor and in in and laura i mean the idea that Ka- that kalal has a has a sister i mean well, of course he would have a sister it's funny how that never even occurred to me that jor and laura would have another child if they if they stayed alive isn't that odd that it never even occurred to me and it's so obvious of course and just it, this really feels like there, there's a story to be told here. And of course, the fact that Bruce Wayne is actually a half-brother to Kal-El, the, the, what, how that adds to the mythos with Jor-El being killed by the green man at the, at the, uh, by that arrow at the end of last issue. And now the big mystery is, you know, who killed Jor-El. And that's revealed in this issue and the machinations. And he was killed because of a prophecy. Well, what does this prophecy say? Wonder Woman, Diana is aware of this prophecy. Seems like all the kingdoms, all the all the various kingdoms are aware of this prophecy. What does this prophecy say? We don't know. John Constantine, who appears to be an advisor to King Jefferson uh, in the uh, Kingdom of Storms, he's aware of it. Uh, clearly, uh, Queen uh, Queen Laura is, is aware of the prophecy. Kalal is as well as he interrogates the the person uh, Oliver, the uh, the the person who shot the arrow that it shot the green kryptonite arrow into the eye of King Jor-El. I mean, it's I, I really love this here, and I love at the end where there's we we get we get Zala, we get revenge is taken at the end of this issue, which raises the stakes. This. I don't, what's not to love about this, man? I, I, maybe, I, I don't know. Like, I'm inclined to say that maybe it's a, could it be a little bit tropey? Was it maybe predictable? I, I don't know. Maybe I just was just asleep at the wheel here, but I just, again, I, I'm enjoying this. I like this. This could go in so many directions and I have no idea where this is going. I think that there's, there's a villain behind the scenes manipulating everything. There's all the people who have magic are kicked out of the kingdom uh, of the house of L. Of course, cause you know, their Kryptonians are vulnerable to magic, so it makes sense that they would kick magic wielders out of their kingdom. Uh, meanwhile, you know, who, what's really at play here? Where's Lex Luthor? Where are these other major villains that we know are villainous in the mainstream DC universe? All these questions that I have, and this is only on issue two. I personally, I, if, you know, all the power to Tom Taylor, man. If he just he does if he does even ten percent of what he did with injustice and in bringing this to this medieval world, I'm in for the long haul here. I I really enjoyed this issue. I th- I thought the art was really good. Uh, I apologize. I'll show more of the art. I I was babbling so long. I've been uh, neglecting my duty showing some of the art. But uh, I think the I mean if I'm nitpicking here, I I mean aspects of the art. Yasmin Putri as I think does a 
overall a pretty good job here. There's, there's a little bit of sloppiness in some spots, but uh, for the most part, I like I like the power that 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 Bruce Wayne has as 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 somebody who feels he's let Jor-El down. And obviously, he did. Jor-El was you know King Jor-El was killed. Uh, the way he chops off Oliver Queen's or Oliver's arm. I mean, this is a this is brutal. This is violent. It only hints at who the Green Man is, who I suspect is Hal Jordan, but maybe it's Sinestro. Maybe the Green Man is Sinestro. Maybe it's not Hal Jordan. You never know what's going to happen. A young Constantine. Clearly, it, you get the sense that King Jefferson almost didn't want to kill Jor-El, but feels they felt compelled to because of this prophecy. What is so? What's so compelling about this prophecy that they feel the need to kill uh, and to make such a dangerous move in this sort of game of Kryptonian thrones, so to speak? I'm I'm captivated by this. I'm intrigued, and and because this is so new, th- this feels fresh to me. This this does, and, and because it can go in any direction. And we know how Tom Taylor likes to kill off characters, so I feel like everything anyone can can die at any at a moment's notice here. And of course. There, there's a significant loss for the Jeff- for the Pierce family at the end of this. That is quite tragic as well. That's only going to make things uh, more interesting moving forward. So, uh, what do you think about it, Jace? Yeah, I sort of lean more into the it feels tropey camp because um, again, this is what we, other than Harley Quinn who started out as a villain but but clearly isn't anymore. Um, it's it's all heroes versus heroes, you know. Um, yeah, who's the green man? You're right. It could be Sinestro. Maybe Tom Taylor will uh, go one better, and it'll be John Stewart. <laughs> and uh, you know, he's trying to piss off Jeffrey Thorne. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do agree that there, even if if that whether it is Hal Jordan or it's Sinestro or it's Simon Baz or or whoever the Green Man is, clearly it's a Green Lantern. It's somebody with a Green Lantern ring or Green Lantern power. Um, they in turn could be being manipulated by a, another big bad, which I don't know, in my mind, I guess if you want to talk about who could be behind the scenes of all of this, it should be dark side. Some, you know, medieval version of, of dark side that yeah, in my point. mind was what, is what would work the best. Um, but regardless of that, yeah, it just feels tropey because it's heroes against heroes. And obviously we, we don't have context or, or any comparison with, uh, with, a a sister for Clark, you know, to say, oh, well, you know, she wouldn't have, have killed the you know, young uh, Prince Pierce. But again, there's there's no comparison. And, and maybe that's why, in fact, they have Zala be the one that that kills uh, kills the, the prince. Um, so, it's you know, you can't argue that it's it, that it's out of character. Uh, I did like the fact that he Tom Taylor leaned into the whole, whole idea of Hey, it's an island of Amazons. Of course, they're going to be lesbian or at least, bi- you know, bisexual. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's no guys around. You still got needs, right? Um, so I thought that worked well. Uh, I, I and I didn't necessarily mind that um, that Jorah was was killed, um, but it did bother me a little bit that Jorel had confided into you know into Bruce that hey, I'm, I'm actually your your father which i don't know what that says about Jorel. I, I guess it's sort of expected in medieval times that you know guys sleep around um but what bugs me about it is you know now now clark blames bruce for not saving his dad and clark has no idea that bruce is his half brother even if bruce were to tell him yeah. that's just going to piss bruce off more because he can't go talk to his father about hey you slept with a woman that wasn't my mother 
like that whole dynamic, I guess it, again, it makes sense in the terms of this is a medieval story and that sort of things happens. Um, but again, it's just very tropey. Um, and so I, I, I could do, I could do without it where this story does shine though. Like you said, the art, I think the art's absolutely fantastic. Um, and, and it is, it is interesting for me. Don't get me wrong. It's interesting for me to see a medieval version of, of Clark Kent. Uh, or Clark L or Cal L or, you know, whatever, however, whatever name he goes by here. Same thing with Bruce, same thing with Alfred, same thing with, you know, uh, Constantine and, and Harley Quinn. Like, I love all that. Uh, but once I see that version, I'm ready to move on. You know, it's almost like all I need is uh, the bombshells version, right? Just give me the art. Hey, this is a reimagining of what these characters would look like in medieval times i don't yeah. need the actual medieval story and that again that's just my own personal taste but i don't think there's any question that this is well done um and ultimately i may come around if what ends up happening again not, you know not to play script doctor but what ends up happening is if if dark side or whoever's behind the green man whoever the big bad ultimately is shows up and we get the the kingdom of, of uh, Jefferson Pierce and the kingdom of, Ka- I guess, Kal-El now, he's the, the ruler, if they team up against the larger threat, you know, and so yeah. it's not hero, heroes well, fighting heroes. But in a way, that just would reinforce the trope, right? Like, it used to be the old the old school Marvel age, like, whenever Spider-Man met the Hulk or Fantastic Four, like, anytime the heroes met the first time, they always, 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 100% of the time fought against each other. And so that's where this just. Yeah. Well, works. and in, there's even a, in the, in the prison scene where Kalal is uh, going to visit and interrogate the, the Oliver queen who shot and killed his father, Jarrell. You can see in the background that it looks like there's Barry, Barry Allen, the flash, there's the blue devil, there's Robin. Could could that Robin possibly be Damien and, and an illegitimate son of, of Bruce Wayne in this story? We shall see. Uh, there's the Killer Shark or uh, King Shark, and there's also I think that's Aquaman. And then we have Bibbo, the detective chimp. We already have Constantine, and they're all in jail in the House of L. So what's interesting here is you know Harley said something to to Cal Al. She said they have lost their world. How much can they endure before they lash out? Almost suggesting that. The, the attack on Jorel was inevitable. So what did the House of El do when they, what did Jorel and Laura do when they came to the world? They must have had a profound impact because you got, you got significant members of, members of the potential Justice League and Justice League Dark in jail in the, in the land of the House of El. So I'm intrigued here. I don't, I, I, ha, I, I can't say this is tropey in that respect. There's, there's simply too many directions that the storyline can go for me to predict where where this can go so that's why i'm intrigued so while i i'll grant you that you know uh, that maybe you know on the surface uh there's some shock value tactics being employed here to sort of get our attention i'm intrigued enough by little things that i've seen in in the in the dialogue and in the narrative that that kind of keep me glued to going into the third issue yeah i I mean, I agree. And that's why I said it could turn around for me, the hero versus hero thing. And yeah, I did, you know, like I just said, I love seeing these different versions of the characters. So, so seeing all the characters in, in the dungeon was, was pretty fun. Um, and then, you know, Bruce, shut up monkey. Very, <laughs> very Bruce Wayne thing to say. So yeah, I guess, I guess we'll see. And you, you're making, you know, obviously the whole idea of 
well, we're going to imprison anybody who's, who's magic connected. And not all these heroes necessarily are, you know, Hawkman, not necessarily, or, or maybe it's Hawk girl, uh, and certainly Barry Allen, but blue devil argument could be made. Same thing with, um, with King shark, you know, Aquaman. Um, it makes sense because obviously even in, in, you know, modern day Superman comics, magic is one of the things that he's, um, he's vulnerable to, but it does make me kind of rethink, well, is it dark side or what could it be, you know, Morgan Le Fay or Mordrew or, you know, somebody else that, that is the big bad rather than, than dark side. But I don't know to me, dark side makes the most sense, but yeah, who knows? We'll I think could be right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on. Uh, Green Lantern number nine written by Jeffrey Thorne. Tom Rainey, Marco Santucci, Maria Laura Sanipo as the artist. Michael Atea does colors, Rob Lee on letters. Uh, you know, it was sort of bad enough when we had Tom Rainey and Marco Santucci as the artist. Now we have a third artist. Um, I don't know. Maybe they're just having a tough time staying on schedule. I love the Marco Santucci art. Uh, I even think that Tom Hodges art, I think, you know, I've said this previously about his art. He's starting to find his footing on these characters uh, it is a very different style than Marco Santucci, but I, I, again, it's been a while since I've seen him draw John where he's looked like a pygmy and the perspectives don't look correct. So I, I think this is some of the best art he's given us. Um, and it's unfortunate that we have a, a third artist who, whose art doesn't, doesn't quite live up to the other two. Um, but, you know, it's only a, a couple of pages for her. Uh, and maybe she just needs to, to find her footing as well. But ultimately, man, I would love to just have one artist, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and I would love it even more if I, it was Marco Santucci, because to me, his art is is the best and the most emotionally impactful. Uh, regardless of that, uh, Michael Latea, the colorist, you know, he colors everybody's art. And, and he's the one, in my mind, doing the heavy lifting here and, yeah. and making this work with a consistency of color where you know despite the fact they're different styles and they're recognizable as different styles they're not they don't look so different um that that it pulls you out of the story so i give michael atea a lot of credit for consistency of of the colors to help pull these three different styles uh together um as far as the story itself well you know the um the owen storyline or joe mullen storyline whatever you want to call it uh, is starting to come together we've sort of learned who who's behind it and whatnot and it makes sense and it's interesting and on the complete other end of the spectrum the how jordan becoming a god storyline is it's going off the rails for me i yeah. i don't care um it's getting more and more ludicrous and feels more and more like john stewart fan fiction like i was worried after we had the first issue that this would head in that direction and then Jeffrey Thorne brought me back around because it, it felt like he w wasn't going that direction. And instead he was actually going in the opposite direction and really giving a lot of context to Jon Stewart and uh, really showing me who Jon Stewart was. But it seemed like he was only doing that to establish a baseline so that now as Jon Stewart ascends and gains all these powers, it's sort of even more, um, more obvious that he, he's being leveled up. So I, I, I don't like a flat out. I don't like it. Um, and that's just a personal thing for me. Maybe if John Stewart was my favorite green lantern, I'd, I would like this, but I think even if this was Hal Jordan, I don't, 
I don't think I would, who's my favorite Green Lantern, I don't think I would like Hal Jordan being leveled up in this way. The whole idea for me, and, and why Green Lantern's always been a favorite character for me, is it's the idea that these are regular guys, regardless of, because when you look at who they were, who they were before their, they got their rings, and regardless of, you know, Hal Jordan, test pilot, there's not a lot of those, but in a lot of ways, he's just an average guy, you know, kind of macho and whatnot. John Stewart, either way, whether it's the art, architect original version that I kind of identify or, or, or like more, or the, the, you know, Marine guy, or it's Guy Gardner, very much, you know, an everyman, even Simon Boz in a lot of ways, very representative, obviously, of um, sort of a, you know, Middle, Middle Eastern or, or Muslim culture, but still like a regular guy, ultimately. Um, and and it, it's sort of taken even further to a further extent with Jessica Cruz, she's not only just like kind of a regular woman, but a regular woman who's deeply flawed because of her uh, anxiety and her agoraphobia, right? So so regardless of which one is your favorite Green Lantern, it's the idea of this quintessentially normal person given the most powerful weapon in the universe. And what do they choose to do with that? Uh, and and I, I forgot Kyle Rayner. Sorry, <laughs> Kyle Rayner fans out there. Yeah, same thing, right? Here's a guy who, who just a graphic artist who, you know, meets the last lantern or last guardian in, a, in, a, in an alley yeah. and has no one to teach him the ropes, right? These are all just regular people. And the juxtaposition of them get, getting the most powerful weapon in the universe and what do they choose to do with it? And how do they choose to, you know, fight against these insane galactic threats? When you take one of those people and you elevate them to the level of of godhood or demi demigod, you're sort of de defeating the purpose of where that tension is between a regular person and having this powerful weapon and what do they choose to do with it. So I think maybe that's why it's not working for me. I think maybe that's what, you know, beyond the fact that John Stewart's not my favorite Green Lantern, whatever, that that's sort of beside the point. Um I again I think even if this was Hal Jordan, even if it was um you know, Kyle Rayner or, or whoever, I still don't think I would, I would like it. And you could make the argument, well, isn't that what they did with Kyle Rayner when they made him White Lantern? Well, yeah, but he didn't really have control over it. And it, it wasn't, you know, he didn't manifest, you know, the powers all the time. It, it wasn't to this level. It, it, And he was very unsure of himself. So I don't, I don't think it's, it's, it's the same thing. Um, this is just so, it feels to me overtly like, fan fiction where it's, it's all about turning John Stewart into the most powerful hero in the DCU. So that, and it's, it's why, why, why are you telling this story? If this whole time, like it's been a while, right? This is issue nine. Um, and the other storyline is so interesting. Think how much further along we could be yeah, on that plot. Yeah. That is so interesting if we weren't wasting time with this John Stewart fan fiction, you know, um, I, I don't get it. So I don't know. Maybe your mileage varies. Rocky, what did you think? Uh, I'm afraid I agree with you. I I'll be more generous to Jeffrey Thorne. I, it's clear that he loves John Stewart and his love for the character does shine through here. Uh, I think where where I think it comes up short for me is that I think I get a feel of what he's trying to do for John Stewart He's, he wants to make John Stewart, I guess, the, the the new light bringer. He's for some reason John Stewart. They're in the dark sector. John Stewart is supposed to be helping, trying to find the other 
I mean, there's there's a thousand Green Lanterns in the dark sector. Three hundred were killed. He's trying to save the remaining seven hundred, and then we uh, suddenly we got sidetracked with John Stewart from Lonar, the new guard, telling him that he's going to ascend and become a new god, but not quite a new god, but something. And Lonar is being deliberately vague. Uh, Jeffrey Thorne, the writer, is being deliberately vague. He's dragged on this mystery that I don't think many people care about for the last five, six issues already. Who cares? There's even a flashback here that wastes four or five pages with Jon Stewart remembering back when he was a kid in high school, being bullied or fighting bullies. And then we're supposed to get a lesson here that, you know, the teacher morphs into a guardian and says, Jon Stewart, there are many ways to defeat brutality. Violence is the least useful. Okay, so is that your way of saying that Jon Stewart's going to ascend and become a god? Okay, but even being transformed and taken to the, the, the Lightbringer world where this other new god called, out of the blue, this other new god, Isaac of New Genesis, is the Harbinger of the Lightbringer. Okay, so you're creating, he's creating this Lightbringer god. Why? So what? Why are we transported to Lightbringer world? We were never, we're not, we're never told. Why is that a big deal? And then, and then the Lightbringer God, in order to create this God, is draining the life forces from these other people on this Lightbringer world. So John Stewart stops that, and at the end of, and then at the end, he destroys the Lightbringer, but that creates a God storm. Okay, well, what's the point? Like. You're gonna create a god storm is created, which is the end of everything. What a like what of it? I I don't. Jeffrey Thorne has 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 been unsuccessful in 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 explaining to us the readers why we're supposed to care. Because this feels like a detour, and it's felt like a detour that's lasted five issues. I care about getting to the bottom of who was murdering all those Green Lanterns. That's what I care about. And getting out of the dark sector. And I'm really excited about the storyline of what's happening on Oa. Joe Mullen's character as she's investigating what really happened on Oa. Why did the central battery explode? I actually love this. It was it was it was far more interesting, far better art, quite frankly. <laughs> I, I and I think that's uh, Marie uh, Marie Santusi's art is uh, is much better. I love the idea. It's fine. We're finally getting an explanation as to why the central power battery exploded. And that, you know, it, it, it has to do with, uh, you know, uh, a betrayal of one of the guardians, uh, basically allying himself with this, uh, with the allying himself with the, the bright circle terrorists that at the beginning uh, infiltrated the United uh, Planets Assembly and assassinated one of the guardians. Uh, but, but that was all misdirection, this Euridian character. Uh, which is magic-based. They had a dispute with the Guardians eons ago, and the Guardians, of course, hid them away and, and took took their magic away from them. And this is just one massive ploy for these this Uridian and her people, the Bright Circle terrorists, to sort of get their magic back, uh, back from the Guardians. And in order to do that, they had a they had a plan in order to for 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 Ko, Koyos Ko, Koyos. Am I saying that right? Koyos Guardian, that he was going to negotiate with the Guardians, but the failsafe, the, the secondary backup plan, was to shoot Koyos with an arrow, and then inside the arrow was something that when 
during his funeral when he was when his body entered the central power battery it exploded and that's what destroyed the central power battery that's kind of interesting i kind of like that and that and that threw off everything and now the guard now the green lanterns are weakened and now they're at their weakest point and now the rest of these uh these magic based creatures can come into play because they still have they only got half their magic but they need the rest of it that's actually interesting to me this feels like such a disconnect between the other storyline with john stewart that i just don't care about and the other thing is, are we just going to get a Duke Ek Machina ending where Jon Stewart's going to become a god and then fly into the central power battery and power up the battery again with his massive Jon Stewart? I'm a, I'm, I'm the new torchbearer. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna repower the powder battery now. I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. Kyle Rayner did that too. Kyle Rayner was a torchbearer, so I'm not, you know, I get it. I guess you can do it. But didn't we kind of already get that storyline already? I'm not sure if this is saying anything new other than just propping up another Green Lantern character uh, but not really telling a new tale. But the jury's out. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, but this is a very choppy tale. And unfortunately, I know a lot of people that are that opted out of this series quite a long time ago. And I, I will say this as well. I think I had to reread this multiple times, reread previous issues. I thought that the Joe Mullen story, I thought there was at least six, seven pages that should have been told recapping. Instead, it, it a lot of pages were wasted uh, with beautiful art and beautiful colors. I mean, really beautiful colors here. There's, the art's fantastic, but uh, Thorn Jeffrey Thorne consistently fails to to tell a cohesive story that's easy to follow, and he he doesn't have the excuse that he doesn't have enough issues. He's got plenty of issues. This story should not be as confusing as it is. Uh, but for some reason, it always feels confusing. And I always feel like I'm lost. And I shouldn't feel that way. And I know I'm not the only one. I mean, because normally I could say I can follow my sword and say, okay, sometimes it's just me. But it's not just me. There's lots of people that aren't understanding what the hell's going on here. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the problem where he's basically telling two different stories, you know, two different main plot threads, as opposed to if it was just one, it would be, we wouldn't feel like, you know, pages were being wasted or... So anyway, let's move on. Uh, next book we're going to talk about, Suicide Squad number 10, Spaced. This is from writer Robbie Thompson. Eduardo Penseca and Julio Ferreira do the art on pages 1 through 3 and 16 through 22. Dexter Soy does pages 4 through 15. Marcelo Maiello and Alan Pasalacqua on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Um, you know, once again, I will say... Hey, it's great that this book is on time. It's not so great that we don't have consistency of of art. Uh, love Edward uh, Panseca, Eduardo Panseca's art. I think it's absolutely fantastic and detailed. I'm less a fan of the Dexter Soy art, but it still works. But either way, I'd be fine with either one of these guys doing the whole book. Um, it's just too too bad that uh, that that's not the case. Um, but man, that Eduardo Panseca full page uh, black hand. Oh man. That is, that is gorgeous. So I'm liking what's going on here. You know, I, I complained a little bit or wondered last issue about the idea of taking Suicide Squad into space. They end up recruiting this bird skull dude named Yorick. Uh, well, that's a nickname for him because he has some alien name they can't even pronounce. <laughs> uh, but, but all along, you know, Amanda Waller is pulling the strings and, you know, it makes sense for who Amanda Waller is. The, the whole idea of them in space, it's, yeah, it's a little far-fetched to see Talon and Calibra out there and zero gravity fighting and whatnot, knock 
uh, Nocturna. You know, she's way back in her early appearances in Detective Comics. You would never think of her as, as a character to be out there in space. So it's a little problematic, but at the end of the day, it's fun. And the fact that, you know, all along Amanda Waller was after Black Hand, it does it does make a lot of sense. Um, Major Disaster is a total dick. He always has been. <laughs> so, surprise, surprise. Yeah, no, no uh, stretch for Robbie Thompson there on the characterization. Uh, so, yeah, I, I enjoyed this issue. I, I am over the moon about Suicide Squad because, uh, I you know, I talked about it before where when we got the – it was announced that this new series was coming and we got a preview of the cover and Peacemaker was right there front and center. Uh, and it just felt like pandering to me um, because obviously the, the Suicide – James Gunn Suicide Squad movie was – upcoming and to be followed by a Peacemaker HBO Max series. And so uh, I wasn't a fan. It felt like he was being, you know, kind of shoved down my throat. But, you know, regardless, I'm sure Robbie Thompson was told, okay, you're going to write Suicide Squad. Peacemaker's got to be part of the team. (laughs) Um, He made it work. He did a a great job. And despite the fact that for the most part on this main Suicide Squad team, uh, there are no sort of traditional suicide squad members that we're used to seeing you know there's no dead shot there's no captain boomerang um it, it still works you know there's no there's no harley quinn uh, he's doing a great job the only thing i would say is i would not have minded we got one you know right on the last page we got um we finally saw rick flag and his suicide squad team that he's put together um that wants to take out Amanda Waller. I, I am very anxiously awaiting that uh, that team. So we've got Cheetah, we've got Mirror Master, we've got this, um, uh, we've got Peacemaker on the team also, and and the, the Parademon. And it, do you know who that's in the back with the Z on his chest? That's uh, Lars Zod, the son of General Zod. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yep, yep. So yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that because I can't wait for Amanda Waller to get what's coming to her. I also, uh, you know, I wouldn't have ever thought of of Match, who I'm not really that familiar with, um, you know, pairing her him off with Noc, uh, Nocturna, which I think is actually a interesting pairing. Um, Nocturna comes across a little younger here than I, you know I've, I've ever seen her, but it works, and at least their kids would have the same complexion. <laughs> matching, matching. Hey, it's a good match. Get it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and and th- there's some great characterization of Culebra here as well. So, so yeah, uh, pleasantly surprised that uh, Robbie Thompson has exceeded all my expectations for Suicide Squad. This is a great book. It really, really is. Lo- love the characterization. That that's the strength of this book, in my mind. Um, and and uh, Panseca and Soy are up to the task uh, with making sure that emotion and and uh, characterization interactions come across well. So. Uh, you're enjoying it too, Rocky, right? I am enjoying it. And, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. And you know, the pieces are in place. Amanda Waller now has all the pieces in place. She's got a piece of the rock of eternity. She's got a bit of the piece of the, the Owen power battery. She now has the, at the end of this issue, she now has acquired the black hand from green folks. So green lantern fans will, I mean, managed to acquire the black hand from the prison, from the science cells on Oa. So getting captured by Joe Mulian, getting captured by Joe, the green lantern here was all intentional. Uh, and all with the idea to power up and to protect earth three. Cause Amanda Waller is fascinated with earth three. She wants to make that her world and shield it off the rest of the multiverse. Uh, 
And so it's very, very interesting. Also, I just want to make a point here that we got an origin here for Culabra, uh, which is interesting. Apparently, she's or her origin is tied to the the spy or, the former spy organization known as Spiral, which was the old spy or uh, spy organization that Dick Grayson, as Grayson worked for, uh, back during the uh, I guess that would have been during the 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 New Fifty Two or the Reaper. Anyways, I I can't remember, but in any event. Interesting enough, she was experimented upon, and then, of course, Amanda Waller came along, promised Calabra, come work for us, we'll protect you from Spiral, but then, who's going to protect you from Amanda Waller, right? And per Calabra. Uh, interesting here about the Lazarus thing. We've talked before about how the Lazarus pit, the Lazarus pills, the Lazarus resin, it's Lazarus, Lazarus, Lazarus. It's like Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Everybody's got a little bit of Lazarus something here, and but there's a new twist on the Lazarus power here, or the Lazarus pill. It it's interesting that uh, in the in the pages of Task Force Z, the Lazarus pill, you can it resurrects the body, but it it its effects wear off that you can eventually die again, and the same effect here occurs with Calebra. But for for whatever reason, if when this has this Lazarus pill when it wears off, it actually turns Calebra into a ghost presence that allows her to become immaterial and to you know dematerialize and to walk through walls and ultimately free black hand from the science cells so it's it's weird that how this the lazarus resin seems to have a different effect than a lazarus pill from the lazarus pits i mean there's there seems to be different variations on the use of lazarus liquid or lazarus fluid i don't necessarily buy that i think (laughs) Lazarus resin is Lazarus resin, but I will say the reason that it works this way in this book is because the writer needs it to. Exactly. <laughs> but 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 if if we want to play, you know, kind of Marvel no prize game here and impress Robbie Thompson, and if Robbie listens to this, feel free to use this as your reason. It could be that because that happened, or you could say this is happening to Calebra because the first time she died, she was actually in hell. Yeah, and and then point. that's where her spirit was, and so I mean, I guess you could make that a reason, yeah. but the real reason is because the writer needed it. To yeah, be that way. but I, another reason could be the experiments that were done on her by Spiral maybe changed her yeah. body chemistry yeah. or something that's too. True. So, but it's yeah. it's just sort of interesting that, like you said, every writer seems to be playing fast and loose with this Lazar. They're really taking this Lazarus thing and just writing it for all it's worth. I mean, good grief! I I kind of chuckle at it a, a little bit. If uh, also a minor little nitpick here, I mean, I think Joe Mullen as a Green Lantern, I love her as Green Lantern, but I think she's been overused. I mean, uh, we have so many Green Lanterns. Uh, we still have Hal Jordan. I mean, I mean, I. It seemed to me that we probably could have had other Lanterns there. I know most of them are taken off the playing field, but we could have seen Hal Jordan here. I was a little bit surprised that, I mean, I don't think it's possible for her to be in this many places at once. But uh, again, that's a minor little nitpick here. Overall, pretty good. I love seeing Nocturna and Match together. A good match. <laughs> and uh, uh, I like it. And I can't, I love seeing Colonel Flag with the Cheetah, the Parademon, Larzad, Mirror Master, and Bloodsport. I can't wait to see to the clashing of these various Suicide Squad teams. And ultimately, we're, they're still going to clash on Earth 3 at some point. And at some point, we know that they're going to be taking the crime syndicate off the playing field because we know in future state, the crime syndicate is actually defeated. So we haven't even seen that battle yet. So I'm hoping for us 
a Suicide Squad crime syndicate fight uh, issue, uh, and I hope Robbie Thompson has that in store for us. So overall, I'm I'm happy. I'm as happy as you are on this title. Yeah, I'll be even happier if uh, Amanda Waller finally gets her reckoning. And I, <laughs> you know, and I didn't I didn't mention this when we were talking about Dark Knights of Steel. I, I think I blocked it out, but I'll mention it here because we're talking about Amanda Waller. Yeah. I could have done without seeing the middle medieval version of Amanda okay. Waller. General Waller. Oh, come on, come on, Taylor. Can we just have one goddamn book without Amanda Waller in it? God's sake. So anyway, uh, let's move on. Crushing Lobo number seven. This is from writer Mariko Tamaki. Amon Kane the Halepin is the artist. Colors by Tamara Bondelan. Letters by Ariana Mayer. Uh I mean, this is okay. I. I feel like I want to like this book more than I do. I, you know, I've talked uh, in the past about the fact that I'm not the you know biggest fan of Lobo, and I, I never really was uh, familiar with Crush before we started reading this. And and this series for me, uh, they'll, I'll get like one or two issues where I'm like, man, I'm really glad I'm reading this. This is really enjoyable. And then the next issue is just kind of meh. And this is one of those sort of meh issues, and maybe it's because it has so much of Lobo in it. The, the whole issue is basically one long chase scene between crush and lobo uh where you think that crush in the end gets her man um and and takes him back to the prison just just in time before you know her her time is up and she's she's killed uh and then come to find out uh maybe lobo was in on this all along because mm. they say now now entering with inmate number 2981 and test subject 2981b like wait test subject wait what so was was lobo in this all along uh was he not and you know the the prison and the powers that be were uh were doing something unbeknownst to him and and lobo and crush are going to team up to ex escape the prison together is this certainly hasn't been some sort of touchy-feely series about crush and lobo you know reconciling as as father and daughter which I never really expected it to be, despite the fact that that's what what Crush wanted to be. So, I, I I don't I don't know how to feel about this. I'm not really invested in these characters. Like I said, this is my first exposure to Crush, and I've never really cared about Lobo one way or the other. Um, but there have been some really good issues and, and and sort of emotional and impactful issues, and some others that are just not just not you know just not that. And this is one of those not that is issues. You know I. I imagine if you're a fan of Lobo and you like the crazy over the top violence and action and, and dynamic art that, you know, this is what you signed up for. Um, and, and I'll say that the, the writing and the pacing, the artwork, uh, everything is, makes for a technically very good, very good comic. Um, but for me, who's not, I don't really have a connection to these characters. When I get an issue like this, it's just kind of like, okay, yeah, it's, it's, Crush and Lobo, it you know, kind of is what it is. Um, but I am curious to see how it's all, it's all going to wrap up. I, is it going to be a, a situation where Lobo was in on it uh, and and set up Crush, and that's the whole reason they let him out in the first place, or is it going to be Crush and Lobo escaping together? We we have one one issue to go, and I st still don't have any idea what this series, what the point of the series is. Uh, I guess you'd say because um, it certainly wasn't what it was sort of sold to us as, which was, uh, you know, th this exploration of their relationship, because it's like, you, you would kind of think, okay, 
they they finally spend a significant amount of time together in the pages of this issue, but it's time spent just chasing each other and punching each other. There's no actual, hey, let's sit down and have a meaningful conversation, which, you know, maybe that's not on the, that's not on the table for these characters and, and wouldn't ever be. So I, I'm not the guy to say that one way or the other, because again, I, I'm not heavily invested in these characters. So uh, any thoughts on this one, Rocky? Look, I, I'll give Marika Tamaki credit here. This is uh, this is a fun Lobo. This is probably one of the, the f- more more fun issues of her run uh, on this series so far, this miniseries so far. I mean, this half this issue is Lobo running around naked and everyone being disgusted, looking at a naked Zarnian running around, and his daughter uh, being equally repulsed, uh, chasing her dad and, and helping him, and and running into old nemesis like that that coffee kind of character that she met in the beginning and just crazy nonsense Tamara uh, Tamara Bonvillain's art or colors here really pop off the page does a really good job the art here is really good I've I'm not familiar with this artist Amanke Nahuopan I mean just really I think the art's really good and uh, this is one giant glorified action sequence of of an issue Uh, 24 you know 22 pages of fun and just a lot of a uh, lot of action, and like you said, at the end, there's some misdirection there. Just when, uh, just when Crush thinks she finally returns her dad to prison, she ends up becoming a set test subject as well. So there's more to it than meets the eye. You gotta wonder if maybe uh, maybe Lobo had had this planned all along, and uh, uh, you know this is you know that there's gonna be father and daughter here, Lobo and Crush, obviously. I'm really hoping that there's an emphasis on the dysfunction in their relationship. And it looks like Marika Tamaki is making it as dysfunctional as possible. And that's a good thing. Because the last thing I want is a, is Lobo being in a functional relationship with his daughter. I mean, these are the last two Zarnians. These are the last two remnants of the Zarnian race. And they are angry, upset, and frankly, uh, they're they're basically screwed up individuals and that's the way I want my Lobo and Crush to be. So this is a fun series. I didn't necessarily need it, but it is fun. I think Marika Tamaki, she knew she knew the story she had to tell. I think she's had fun with it. I think this is in keeping with the Lobo character. I I wasn't a big fan of some of the earlier issues where I thought there was too much of an emphasis on Crush's relationship with her oh so perfect billionaire girlfriend. I think that's that's just that's just not crush to me. I don't. I don't think of crush being in a functional relationship with a human. I, I'm sorry. I just don't. So that didn't work for me. This issue doesn't have any of those flashbacks with her girlfriend. This is just Lobo fun, crush fun in space, whooping it up, having a good time, a zany adventure, and dysfunction all around. So this is has one of my uh, higher higher grades in the series. Cool. Uh, All right, well, let's move on to last book. Uh, We're going to talk about it's One Star Squadron from writer Mark Russell, Steve Lieber's The Artist, Dave Stewart on Colors, Dave Sharp on Letters. Um, You know, this doesn't say Black Label on it. (laughs) Um, It's it's a limited series, one of one of six, but it certainly feels like it it should be called out as being away from main continuity. I, I mean. I I'm a big fan of Mark Russell. You know, he's a satirist. He has a lot to say about, you know, society and, and, you know, through the lens of of fiction and superheroes specifically. And most of the time I find it very enjoyable. 
Um, but when it, it's hard when he takes a character that you, you're a big fan of and has them act in a way that doesn't seem consistent with everything you've read from that character previously, you know? And, yeah. and this is kind of what I was getting at with the, uh, when I was talking about Dark Knights of Steel. So in this issue, there's this, uh, or the story, there's this organization called Heroes for You, H-E-R-O-Z, the number for you. And it's an app and it's a way you can hire heroes. And they, it's, it's kind of funny when you think about it, like how are these heroes, you know, making money or how are they paying their bills? Um, and they talk about, Hey, we do bar mitzvahs and birthday parties. And you can hire us for, you know, all, all these different things. Um, and it's red tornadoes, the, the leader of this, this branch of it, at least uh, maybe there's more than one branch. that hasn't necessarily been uh, called out specifically, but, you know, he talks about becoming a member of the, the Justice League and feeling like he was doing everything he needed to do, you know, to learn how to be human because he is an android and be a hero. And But at the end of the day, here come the bills, and he had no way to pay them because he didn't have, like, a regular job. So sort of realistic in that way, um, you know, how to be human, how to be a hero, whatever. And so he is such such a quintessentially human character and always has been. Uh, in terms of the emotion and how much he cares about other people. Um, so when Gangbuster is dumped on their doorstep by some really unscrupulous sort of medical professionals who are tired of taking care of him, honestly, they just go and literally drop him off on the doorstep of, of Heroes for You. And Red Tornado, again, with that compassion, is trying to figure out, you know, they don't know that it's Gangbuster. Gangbuster seems to be suffering from... Um, effects of brain damage from all the punches he's taken over the years. Red Tornado's trying to find out where he's from, trying to take care of him, being that compassionate character he is, leaves his sort of second in command in charge, which is, uh, which is Power Girl. Um, and she seems to be a real go-getter in this particular story. And there's even at one point where Heckler's like, uh, you have real powers, right? You're legit legitimately a kryptonian why are you working here and she talks about having read maxwell lord's book and uh how it changed your life and you know money is is power it's it's much better than superpower it's, this doesn't sound anything like any power girl that i've ever read um and then at the end he's talking to the board of directors of heroes for you and throwing red tornado under the bus and like i, I get it Mark Russell is making a commentary on this. And again, I, I, I'm a fan of this sort of thing, but I, I think this specifically needs to have a black label on it. So, because this is not power girl, like this is a really crappy thing to do, you know? And so I, I, I don't know, maybe Mark Russell will turn it around. I, I, I don't, I don't know how to feel about this. It's after one issue. It's, it's too soon to sell too soon to tell it. It is quintessentially, a it feels like a very mark russell book uh and steve lieber art is great in terms of adding little quirks here and there to make it humorous but i think i would feel better about this if it were specifically called out as being out of continuity um because in a way you're disparaging some of these characters and just because they're b-list characters doesn't mean like i'm a fan i like like a lot of lower tier characters you know some of the characters you probably say are 
like Z-list characters, you know. Um, but I still, they still have value as as characters, as as heroes. So I get it. You gotta maybe portray them differently or have them do different things. There's got to be some tension there. Um, there's got to be character drama to tell a story. So somebody's got to be the quote unquote bad guy. And if you choose to make a power girl, fine, but not, not the regular power girl. You know what I mean? So that, that was the, the, the problem that I, I had with it, but I'm in for another issue. We'll see what happens. Uh, what did you think, Rocky? Did you enjoy it? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, I really didn't. And, and, and I'm going to, uh, in the spirit of trying to be as diplomatic as I can, uh, this is a story that's not for me. I actually, I, I'm normally, most of what Mark Russell has written I can get into because it's obvious he's about parody, political satire. I get it. And, and frankly, this is just not my cup of tea. I, you know, in the DC Omniverse of things, all stories matter. This story matters to someone. It doesn't matter to me. I, you're very diplomatic about it. I, I view this, I understand that this was intended to be, maybe he's trying to say something about like, <laughs> he's trying to say something about something, but here's how I feel about it. Reading this. I asked myself, what's the point of this comic? Who is the audience for this comic? What is it trying to say? Uh, Red, Red Tornado, okay, we it established that he's a loser. He can't pay his bills. Power Girl is is power hungry. She's not much of a hero. She's just out. Uh, she, she believes the best way to change the world is to just make a lot of money. Uh, Gangbuster is made a mockery of. He's uh, He's a joke of a character. I guess we're supposed to laugh at the character called Minuteman because his powers last one minute. Oh, isn't that funny? Um, uh, I, I just think these jokes are, are just sad and pathetic. Uh, we got the heckler and we got GI robot that are glorified salesmen for Power Girl. We know that Power Girl herself, I mean, I personally, I'm so disappointed in Power Girl. Why can't we have a Power Girl series, bring Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor and, get, and, re, and reignite a Power Girl series and give her some gravitas and some agency and some, make her, bring back that series. Instead, why are we getting this one star squadron? Who cares? This isn't funny. This isn't entertaining. I didn't I didn't enjoy this at all. This is an insult. You know, people talk about Tom King making a mockery out of characters, which I think is uh is not not as much I think is over overwrought to begin with uh and I think is overly critical of Tom King. But this, I mean, I guess we're supposed to forgive Mark Russell because it's supposed to be a parody, so I guess he gets a free reign because it's satire and and, and meant to be this way. Well, okay, but I'm I'm just gonna choose. I'm not a fan of this. Power Girl in the pre the the version of Power Girl we had before. The last time we heard of Power Girl, she was actually off running off to Earth too. This was in pre Death Metal, and she left. She was a billionaire. You know, Karen Starr is a billionaire. She went back to Earth too and left her billion dollar empire to Tanya Spears, the new Power Girl. And they both ended up in the. It was in I think it was a Deathstroke Annual number four. They ended up in the Innerverse. Both Tanya Spears and Karen Starr were lost in the Innerverse, and then presumably, at some point, may have gotten out of that for Death Metal. But, anyways, my point being is that is actually that that flowed from the pages of uh, of Deathstroke. That had to do with Power Girl, Tanya Spears. That's that's what I'm interested in in reading about. But but no no, we're getting this story here because it's really important that we're supposed to look at 
Red Tornado, is he supposed to be like this? Is this is he trying to do like the vi- Tom King did with the vision here? Like, I don't. There's not. Where's the drama? What's 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 the actual point of this story? Are we supposed to care that Gangbuster is mentally downtrodden and his his ex wife or this friend of Gangbuster pretends she doesn't even know who he is? There is nothing about this story that interests me at all. I read this as an escape to escape my life. If I happen, if my life was as pathetic as Red Tornado's, why would I want to read about my life if it was this pathetic? Seriously. And if since my life is not this pathetic. I'm not sure why I would want to read about this. Well, this is this is this is this isn't a parody. This I'm not entertained by this. This isn't funny. I I, I don't I just and but hey, I'm sure this is for somebody. But this this is a one star squadron. I give this a one star, whether it's out of five or out of ten or out of twenty. I'm very disappointed in this. The art the art's fine, but. I mean, if you want to do something funny, why don't do Justice League International? But we already got we already got blue and gold as a series. Why are we getting this vain attempt at another uh, at another humor comic, which I think fails spectacularly in my mind? But Mark Russell, I like Mark Russell. I I enjoyed some of his Future State issues, but this is a significant miss for me. I, I I'm sorry, and I just, that's as diplomatic as I can say it. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know if this is supposed to be funny. You're right; it certainly, it certainly <laughs> isn't. Know. It, it 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 it's what Mark Russell does. He does satire, but honestly, the the overall feel and tone of this issue that I get, this is just sad. Yeah, it's sad. These these aren't superheroes. Yeah, they're pathetic. It, like, yeah, you're, you you hit the nail on the head. Like, who wants to read about? And that's kind of what I was getting at. Even if it's B or C or D or Z list characters, there still should be some level of respect. There there's 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 worth in those creations to tell stories about heroism. You could yeah. make the argument there's worth in telling stories of of these characters where you are satirizing and using these characters to make a comment on society and whether we give you know people with mental issues enough help or you know if there's enough opportunity for people who are in the middle class just trying to tell their bills. Like I totally agree that there's value there too, but Again, stamp this with the black label so somebody doesn't pick this up thinking that this is indicative of what the regular DC universe is like. You know what I mean? So uh, anyway, that does it for uh, the issues that we're going to get into uh, detail on. There are a a couple of other books that came out this week. So let me give you a a rundown on uh, on what those are. Uh, We had an issue of the, uh, the Justice League. Infinity title, which is uh, basically a, a continuation of the, the Justice League cartoon. Uh, that's issue number six. We also had uh, The Joker Presents a Puzzle Box, issue five, which is a digital first for Matthew Rosenberg. Uh, in the horror line, DC Horror Presents Soul Plumber number three. Uh, and then as far as collected editions, there are a number of those coming out this week from DC as well. And of course, want to mention them. Um, because they always make really good uh, Christmas gifts. So if you're looking to to buy something, um, <laughs> I definitely would, would recommend the, the Batman Urban Legends Volume 1 trade, trade paperback because you're going to get exposed to a lot of different Batman uh, characters there. Uh, also, we, we talked about Swamp Thing issue number 10. Well, the first volume, which has the first five issues of Ramby's Swamp Thing, gets a collected edition. And there's also a Saga of the Swamp Thing box set, which uh, collects... 
uh, all of those, uh, all of the complete run of, uh, of Saga of the Swamp Thing from, from back in the 80s. So uh, those are some collected editions that are out this week if you are so inclined. Uh, and that's going to do it for this, uh, this episode. So uh, as I said earlier, everybody, don't forget to uh, be on the lookout for the, the wrap-up for LA Comic-Con and my, my chat with Chris, their CEO. Uh, and then did you have anything you want to plug that's coming up later this week, Rocky? Uh, well, I did do, uh, I was a guest on, uh, Nerdette's newsstand, uh, with comic breakdown and Nerdette's newsstand, uh, that, that you can check out Nerdette's newsstand, uh, YouTube channel. I did that uh, yesterday and I thank her for being on her channel. We had a lot of fun talking about DC comics and, uh, this week, uh, I do intend on putting out a, a little bit more, uh, an in-depth review of, uh, Wonder Woman Historia that uh, I may or may not do a collaboration with you on, uh, Jace. That'll depend on your schedule. I know you're busy, but uh, we'll see about that. And yeah, beyond that, uh, just everybody, you know, hit the subscribe button. Uh, you know, subscribe to Comic Boom! Uh, exclamation mark. And uh, certainly check out Jace at the Comic Source. And yeah, it's always it's always good reviewing DC Comics with you, Jace. Yeah, appreciate that. And uh, hopefully everybody, I'm going to have the announcement. I mean, 12 Days of the Comic Source starts next week, so I really need to get on it with the graphics so you guys can know uh, what's coming up with that. We have a really cool thing we're going to do this year uh, and I'm bringing back giveaways this year as well. So you want to be sure you're listening um, and get some cool free stuff. So again, we want to thank everybody for, for your support as always. And we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the comic source podcast on Spotify, Apple podcast, Stitcher, Google play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.